0: with me in my foul life
1: what's shaking podcast world back at you another episode of you the duck dog series on the foul life podcast so excited to have you all back with us hope you all are enjoying the content just had a great episode with 1999 world goose calling champion 2000. Champion of champions, world goose calling champion, Kelly Powers. He's always a blast to have on the show. Hopefully, y'all were enjoying those stories about the late, great Tim Grounds. We did that podcast on the two year anniversary of Tim's passing. It's amazing that it's already been two years. We miss him. But I hope y'all got to listen to Kelly Powers lay it down some of those great stories of being in the field, being on the stage, being on the road with Tim Grounds. We miss you, Tim. Rest in peace, my man. Today's episode of the podcast is brought to you by our friends at the best dog food in the world the best pet food in the world, Yucanuba. we truly believe in it. We see a completely different animal in our dogs when we feed Yucanuba on a consistent basis. If I were you, I would... Really, do some research and due diligence on nutrition and what dogs need in their cycle, their GI track, everything that goes into their digestive system, their energy, their hair, their lips, their gums, their joints, their hips. It's amazing what Yukanuba is doing for our dogs all across the country. Brad Arrington and Lee Howard at Team Mossy Pond down in Georgia feed it exclusively. Andrew up at Wild Acre in Minnesota feeds it exclusively. We're feeding it all over the country and we're getting awesome results. Just check it out. Do the test. Feed your dog, transition into it for a week or two, and just look at the results and the difference it makes in the dog's life. We're looking for a great quality of life, and that's what Ucanuba provides for us. Our guest today, you've heard him here at the Fowl Life podcast before during our Dog Trick Training Caller series. He's been on with Brad Errington. We've talked to Mr. Pete Fisher about several different topics. He's been a vet tech. He owned a very successful kennel in central Minnesota. He's a duck hunter, a goose hunter, an upland hunter, a dog owner, a dog lover. Mr. Pete, how are you, my man?
0: we're doing good today chad thanks for having me on a second time i guess this is the sequel huh
1: yeah this is a i mean when we get a hit maker you know (laughs) you got to keep topping those charts so you got to bring it back once in a while
0: yeah you're too kind thanks though.
1: how's uh it's october it's it's actually um it was almost right around 40 42 degrees here for the low out west is it getting pretty cold up there now
0: it has uh, the leaves are turning the leaves are coming off the trees now, Chad. Um, no ice on the ponds. that's always the uh, the indicator when we're really getting into uh, fall. but no ice on the ponds yet, but uh, you know we're seeing a few birds around not not great numbers. Um, we've actually got a really good pheasant crop this year in in Minnesota. Uh, our waterfall have kind of moved west on us <clears throat> the, the migration and but we, we see a few but not like it used to be, but fall is here time to get your dog out and uh, and this is all the things we practice for all summer long and uh, get them out and start uh, on the job training now so
1: with it moving west like you just mentioned are you moving west with them will you leave and go into the dakotas at all and follow the ducks to get on some of these early season hunts while the migration's thick in those areas
0: you know i have hunted north dakota over the years and some of the finest waterfowl hunting i ever had in my life it was up around goodrich with a group of uh uh, friends and uh i got it was just phenomenal field hunting and some water hunting um you know uh i i don't anymore i don't get west anymore um i probably have some contacts if i looked around out there um but no i don't i kind of hunt locally um hunt pheasants locally and uh and you're gonna laugh i hunt deer which there's more darn deer around now chad than there are anything and that's the least um hunting that i really do i hunt it because i love venison and i hunt about 100 yards from my house and uh we've got an uh just incredible deer population this year but our, our waterfall hunting's really gone downhill and i haven't been out to north dakota in a couple of years so
1: you talk about deer hunting are you using dogs for deer hunting at all are you shed hunting with them are you tracking with them are you are you blood these dogs at all that you own
0: no, you up in Minnesota, you cannot use a, a dog for any kind of a uh, big game hunting, uh, such as deer. So that's, that's not uh, legal. Uh, I'm, I don't, I've never gotten into the shed hunting. Um, you know, I did hunt tests, uh, field trials, gun dog training, and then hunted my dogs. But no, I never did any of the shed dog um, uh, worked at competitions that are out there now.
1: When you have that many deer around, do you at this time of year? Do you still have to worry about ticks and Lyme disease and and deer ticks that that you would see in the the late spring and the summer months on a deer population or a deer herd?
0: Oh my, that that is a great question, Chad. And uh, what happens? A lot of people think that once we get into the fall that we don't have ticks anymore, and we actually have a resurgence of the deer tick and um, the deer ticks. With deer ticks comes Lyme's disease, and and I've got a, a little story I want to tell real quick. Um, Within the last two weeks, I, um, I had a friend of mine. I'm, I'm just going to call her Karen, even though I told her I wouldn't mention her name. Uh, Karen got a hold of me one night. And she says, if you got a minute, I need some advice. And so I said, sure. And so she called me. It was probably eight, nine o'clock at night. And uh, she has a little Australian shepherd. <clears throat> and uh, she said, Pete, my dog's laying by the back door. I just got home from work. And this dog uh, looks like he's on death's door, so to speak. And so, uh, you know, I worked as a vet tech, Chad, before I was in the dog training business, before I worked for a company. And so there's a handful of things that immediately do that we want to check out when you get a dog in this situation. And I said, okay, Karen, go over the dog and tell me, does the dog have any cuts or bruises, blood coming out of the mouth? Let's rule out the first thing, Chad, which is hit by car is what I, I, I call it. And, um, and she went all over the dog and she said, Pete, dog's breathing was kind of shallow. She didn't think it was going to make it the night. It was eight o'clock at night. And I said, okay, so we can rule out uh, hit by a car. What about uh, poison? Karen lives out in the country, farmland all around her. Uh, she said, no, we don't have any poison out. Um, secondary poison, that's a huge problem with dogs. Secondary poisoning is uh, people out there poisoning mouse, uh, a mouse uh, rats, uh, gophers, and the dog finds an, an animal killed by poison and, or died by poison, and the dog eats it. And so that's secondary poisoning. We ruled that out, and then at that point, she had gotten hold of the emergency vet clinic. And all the while, Chad, I'm thinking, this dog might have Lyme's disease. I've seen my own dogs crash from Lyme's disease. And so I went through the whole list of things as she was texting me uh, and, and talking on her way to the emergency clinic. And as it turned out, after they got the dog there, they went over the dog, they couldn't find out anything. They did a Lyme's test, dog had been vaccinated for Lyme's. All, the Lyme's vaccine is not 100%, like a lot of vaccines. And so at the end of the day, I, said, I sent her a message and I said, don't let them leave, uh, let you leave there without treating this dog for Lyme's disease, because I have a sneaking suspicion that's what it is. And Lyme's is actually fairly easy to treat. You know, treat it with a product called doxycycline and, and an anti-inflammatory and a pain medication called Rimidol. And so even though the dog tested negative for this, they still put the dog on it. Karen got home gave the dog the first tablet of Remidol, and she told me within 15 to 20 minutes this dog was starting to respond. Here's a dog, uh, Chad, the reason I tell that story is there's a lot of people would have looked at this dog and thought, holy mackerel, he's on death's door. Something happened to this dog and happened bad. Uh, Karen said, I don't think he's going to make the night. I don't know if, uh, I told her this the day after, um, I don't know if a dog would die from Lyme's disease, but I've seen my own dogs break of this, and Chad, it, I've seen my own dogs go from a a dog that was three to four years old and uh, within the next time I let him out and take him for a walk, he looks like he was drugged behind a truck or aged to be 15 years old. That's how dramatic and devastating this disease can be. We've got deer all over Minnesota and with deer comes uh, deer ticks and they spread the Lyme's disease all over. And that was a story that I wanted to tell because people forget about how important this is to go over your dog uh, at the end of a hunt and make sure that the dogs doesn't have, uh, deer ticks on him, And then to know the symptoms, um, this, that I just described, um, like I said, I was all along, I was thinking, gosh, I hope this dog has Lyme's disease. Cause it's very easy to treat. Most dogs respond very quickly to it. And that's what it was. Uh, I talked to Karen the next morning, sent her text. I said, how are things? She said, dogs back to normal. So what, that's, what happened? Interesting story go ahead it's
1: very interesting and it's very um, easy to take for granted that you're not going to you know face this issue once the weather starts changing in september october what happens if 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 your cell phone's not on and she can't get a hold of anybody what what's going to happen to that dog as he lays there and and you already mentioned pete that the vaccination is not 100 percent. This dog had been vaccinated for Lyme's disease and tick bites like this, but he still has been affected by he's been infected. Now, what happens in the next 24 hours if she doesn't get the Remedol in the dog per your request?
0: Well, you know, that's a great question. And I've, I've always been able to uh, self-diagnose or get my own dogs to the vet uh, or in this situation with Karen. Had the opportunity to, to give her advice, and, and Karen's no dummy. She was able to get the emergency vet clinic on the phone and get the dog there, even though it was about 20 miles away, because we, I live out pretty rural. Um, I, again, I don't think dogs can die from Lyme's disease, you know, overnight like that. But Lyme's disease in itself is not something you want to uh, have your your uh, the symptoms of never being treated, just like in a human being, Uh, you know, because it can lead to a lot of different things. You know, it can. And this dog was was literally, she said, you know, the breathing was very shallow, laying on its side. To the average person, Chad, uh, she thought at first this dog had been hit by a car or a four wheeler or something like that. So you know, first and foremost, if you can't get a hold of somebody that has some some background in with dogs and veterinary medicine. Is the first thing to do is you got to get your dog to the vet. That's always the first thing. But then when as she was going, I kept thinking, don't don't leave there without treating this dog for Lyme's disease. Because and then at one point she said, "You really think it is?" And I said, I, "I hope it is, and I hope I'm right." And as it turns out, it was. So uh, that's really important uh, because we do have a lot of deer ticks up in and all across the Midwest, and uh, you can't you can't find them all. Deer ticks are very tiny. And, yeah, you can put different treatments on your dog to kill the ticks as they bite in, uh, you know, that uh, product that goes through the bloodstream. Uh, But quite honestly, that stuff isn't always 100 percent effective. So that's a real problem up here in the fall. And people forget about it, especially the guys that go and gals that go in the grouse woods and the pheasant. You know, that's where they're going to find these. Uh, we're less inclined. Uh, waterfall hunters are less inclined to find this out in the weeds. But if you cut through some areas that have a wooded area where that have deer, I'm here to tell you, your your dog is probably going to get infected or infested with uh, deer ticks.
1: So when you if you are a, a grouse hunter pheasant hunter in that area of the midwest where they are proficient the deer ticks and but you are you just said that you could probably mean may get it in a duck hunting situation it's depending on how you access your pond or where you're mm-hmm. taking your dog yep what's the best way to inspect a dog for a tick are you going to see signs that he or she keeps you know throwing his leg up and, and itching or what's the best way to do it is it a magnifying glass is it what, what do you got to do
0: you know, I just use my fingers, Chad. And typically, any tick is going to go to the high spot on the dog. So you don't normally find ticks around the dog's tail, the abdomen, the 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 chest. Normally, you're going to find them anywhere from the shoulders to the neck, up around the ears and the neck area. So that's the place to focus on. And these darn deer ticks, when they when they're before they become engorged with blood, are tiny. They're like the, uh, you know, like a head on a pin. But once they become engorged. Uh, you know, they get to be maybe the size of a pea. So then they're fi- fairly easy to find. But quite honestly, at that point, Chad, the, the, the dog has probably been uh, exposed to the Lyme's disease. And not every dog breaks with these symptoms. Um, my master hunter, Trey, um, has been tested for Lyme's over and over and over. He's never uh, shown any signs of it. I've got other dogs. i got a two-and-a-half-year-old dog uh that has never tested uh positive is is, so to speak but his titers been been low and he's broke with it and and again he was uh about a year and a half old chad when he broke with it and again he looked like he went from a year and a half old to be about 10 years old he could barely even lift his paw leg to get over the bar in the kennel uh these it's really comes on pretty darn quick so Uh, I think it's really important that people, uh, you know, know what what it looks like to start with, because uh, if you don't, you could be looking at this dog saying, hey, what happened to him? Did he get poisoned? Did it get hit by a car?
1: Yeah, that's a that's a huge difference in a normal dog's activity and personality to see it go that fast, which that's why that's why I asked the question, like, what happens in the next 24 hours? It seems like it would just get worse. Now, can a dog naturally? recover from Lyme's disease, tick disease, if if you let it go on? Will that dog that's laying there looking like it got hit by a car recover on its own?
0: You know, that's a great question, and I wish uh, I had the answer to it. It might have never, all the ones I've ever seen at the kennel that had it, or my own personal dogs, or in this case, the dog that I was telling the story about that Karen has, uh, we've all, all, all of them I've been able to diagnose, get them to a vet or self-diagnose and get them on the products we just talked about, doxycycline, which is, uh, works really well in Rimadol. Rimadol is like a, it's a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory. It's a chewable tablet, works phenomenal on these dogs. My own dogs, when I've tossed them one of these, when they broke with the Lyme symptoms, within a handful of hours, they're just about back to normal. But I don't know, Chad, I i, I don't know the answer to your question. But again, it goes back to what I said, when, when in doubt, get the dog to the vet. Um, but I know this, that Lyme's disease uh, is not something that a human being or a dog you want it to let go long-term untreated because it's uh i think it's it's uh very hard on your joints and um you know some of these dogs can become paralyzed from it uh paralysis they call it so it's something that's that's really important that you that you don't let it go untreated
1: yeah it's almost like duck hunters um and that's I'm, I'm referring to duck hunters because I'm around a lot more of that type of hunter than person, you know, a, a Midwestern Iowa, North Dakota pheasant hunter, South mm-hmm. Dakota pheasant hunter, um, which, you know, there's a ton of pheasant hunters. You go to Mitchell, South Dakota on opening day and look at the line out the Cabela's <laughs> door to get some blaze orange yeah. I mean, in a pair of boots. Yeah. It's really amazing. But um, when we when our mentality is like when you watch these dogs work they almost become invincible and i think that a lot of duck hunters have that mentality like you know male or female to watch them go whether it's flooded timber or river hunt and fighting the current or a dry field hunt and they do 300 retrieves on a spring snow goose depredation hunt we look at our dogs as being invincible and and in fact we have to be the ones that are checking on everything from their diet to this tick to their body temperature which is kind of being in the area that i had a question for you regarding body temperature kind of transitioning from the tick disease if, if you have any more thoughts on that just let me know pete but i i really as we're talking about maintenance per se and health of a dog these th- there's been a huge influx in vests in the last decade you know 15 years of protective gear there even the upland variety has vests to protect them against different shears or wood poking into them and stuff like that but when it comes to waterfowl hunting Do you always wear a vest? Now, the flotation part of it, there's the body heat part of it, there's the ability for the the handler to be able to have something to grab onto with these per se, quote-unquote, boater vests with the handles up top. There's a lot of different designs. A lot of them are very innovative. Are they pulling the wool over the consumer's eyes to get him to spend money on a product that a dog doesn't need because he or she is invincible, or do we need to pay attention to the core body temperature of a dog during a hunt? And if so, how cold does that water have to be before Pete Fisher puts a vest on his dog?
0: You know, again, another great question. And, and uh, in regards to the uh, two different types of vest, uh, the one that's a protective vest that we're going to put on that dog, Chad, and he's out pheasant hunting, uh, we have to be careful with that because it can trap the dog's body heat around them. Okay, and we might be pheasant hunting in some pretty uh, pretty uh, warm temperatures. Uh, most of those are going to cover the dog's vest in the backside and and the um, torso are going to be open. You're mostly it's going to be a chest protector, and and I do think they're made out of a very uh, very heavy Cordura. Uh, they they do work well. In regards to the insulated vest for the waterfall hunting, uh, the waterfall hunter, I would say this. Early season, I don't use them because we our water's still pretty warm up here in Minnesota. We got I, we've had some opening days uh, waterfall hunting in the morning. It's eighty degrees, and you spend more time swatting mosquitoes than you do anything. Uh, there, you've got to be careful, Chad, because we don't want to put an insulated vest on a dog and and overheat them. Now, on the flip side, what is that vest really made for? It's it's uh, it does help in flotation, uh, but really, uh, late season. Hunting where my dogs have had to uh, break skim ice and and go out. That that vest is trapping the dog's body heat around their body, keeping the water away from their their skin and their torso, because dogs dogs can uh, uh, go down from hypothermia just like a person, kid. And so normally what I've done when I've uh, cold weather hunted uh, it, and it's it's so cold that we want to put that vest on the dog. Um, I get the dog in and out of the water as fast as I can. I might have a uh, some kind of a blanket with to cover the dog up, uh, but I don't take that vest off because if you ever took a vest off a dog in in those cold weather, cold water situations, it has stopped the water from getting around his torso, and so it's an insulation. It has an insulation factor, but also it keeps the water off the dog's torso. But I've seen them already where you get into these really cold situations where you'll start to see this dog start shivering, and again, dogs have a very high tolerance uh, for pain. And so at the point where you might notice they're in trouble, Chad, they're already in trouble. Um, back to the, to the limes, I, we have no idea when Karen's dog, uh, broke with the limes because nobody was home all day long. Um, I would assume it probably broke with this lime sometime during the day, nobody's around to notice it, which a lot of people have to work and the dog's unattended. So I don't know how long that dog was, was laying there. When I've got that dog out waterfall hunting and I've got a vest on him, and he looks like he's cold and starting to shiver. Uh, then it's up to me to to know that we're at, we're in a situation where that dog needs to get out of the water, get covered up, and get warm. And then I always tell this to people: you know, it's, we're talking about hunting some ducks, and is it worth uh, risking my dog's life uh, with hypothermia over a over a handful of ducks? I can always get more ducks, but I may not be able to ever replace that particular dog, and I'd feel guilty as all hell if that something happened to him. So. In regards to those questions, I, I say the vests are very beneficial, but we have to use some common sense when we put them on the dog. We want to put an insulated vest on a dog that's out hunting in 80-degree temperatures. We'll overheat them then.
1: So is there, is there a certain – is there a tip that you could give the end user, the potential consumer that's looking to get his male or female into a vest? Um, do we want it to be – snug tight to where it's almost like a bodysuit? do we want to have a little bit of of play in it around the neck and around where that where the water is going to slide through it and, and evacuate out of the different parts of the vest um, what, what are we looking for as far as fit goes
0: uh, most of them nowadays seem to fit fairly tight and so the reason being is that it keeps the water uh, from leaking underneath the vest uh, and so it keeps the dog dry, but you also have the, the insulation factor. So I think, uh, the, a little bit tighter, the, the fit in my opinion is better. You might have some people that disagree with me on that. The other thing is if they're loose Chad, and I've got a, an area that we hunt out back, that was a, uh, flooded, uh, willows, uh, area. And I don't want that vest to be so loose that when that dog's in there looking for a down bird and he's 150 yards out from me and all, once that vest gets snagged in a, in a, um, opening on the, uh, around the chest or the shoulder area, and now he's caught out there and and Pete's got to go out there and get this dog and bring him back in. Uh, So I I think a a tighter fitting vet uh, vest has a lot more benefit than one that's going to be loose on the dog and and not really give him a lot of protection and insulation, but also you run the risk of it getting caught on things. Do you go
1: do you have other things in your blind or your boat blind or your pit blind, Mr. Pete, to remedy this type of situation? Are you having during your cold weather time up in Minnesota, which can get very cold? I've had days in Minnesota and North Dakota to where you ask yourself, what the heck are we doing out here? Um, because we are just chasing a mallard. But those are the days that, that, that can be very memorable do you have a buddy heater? Do you have like a chamois that's going to get a lot of that water off the dog? Are you, are you trying to maintain that dog's body temperature, you know, in between each go and each retrieve as much as you can on these cold days?
0: Yeah. I mean, that's uh, I want that dog in and out of the water as fast as I can. When I've had to uh, hunt in a, and one memorable hunt uh, hunt I had was with my buddy, Greg Ruby. And uh, we had my master hunter Rex and it was iced up, but we got out there chatting in the, in the, then the ducks were just, we caught them just perfect. You've been there. And these birds were swirling in, and we had to break some areas open and put our decoys down. But, you know, when you're shooting ducks, you can't always drop every bird right into that opening in the decoys. So they were falling out on the ice. And here's where a handling gun dog comes in. I'd send him out. He'd, he'd break ice to get that bird, but then he might be off in a distance, and he, didn't, he can't tell where his path was out. I'd cast him back over to that ice-broken path and bring him back in so he didn't have to break ice all the way back in. That was one of the colder hunts uh, for a dog I've ever been on. He had a vest on. Eventually, we cut it short. Uh, we had we had, had our fun, but I said, you know what? Uh, Rex is too valuable. Any dog's too valuable to, to lose to hypothermia. Uh, once we got him back into to shore, uh, I had one of those old green army blankets. They're woolen. And uh, I told him off good, and I wrapped him up in that and let him dry off. And The other thing is let him run around and let him, uh, let his circulation come back. A lot of times, these dogs are just sitting there by your side, and they're wet, and they're cold. And so, yeah, to shammy him off, throw some kind of blanket over him. Uh, you know the old style woolen blanket. There's there's something to be said for that. I think everybody's had those over the years. That army green woolen blanket, and they work phenomenal for retaining that heat uh, over the dog because the dog's body temperature, Chad, runs about 101 degrees. That's normal. Um, it's not 98.6 uh, like a like a human being. So those are the things that I do. Is is uh, but I've never had uh, uh, any kind of a heater. But I just use common sense also if it's that cold uh, then it's probably too cold for the darn dog and plus i'm dry and he's wet so that takes the body temperature uh you know reduces it faster and and so you got to be really be careful with that
1: so it's okay to call it good no more retrieves for yeah. them. no matter how invincible we think these animals are which they are on a lot of occasions but it's okay <laughs> oh, yeah. it's it's our responsibility to say that's the last one of the day right there And I think that a lot of duck hunters have a hard time accepting that, right? Because they want to see that dog perform amazing stuff throughout every hunt day. But when you start talking about body heat, Mr. Pete, and you start talking about the health aspect of a hunt, you just mentioned before, you'll have really balmy mosquito ridden 80 degree days in October, Then all of a sudden, November 1st, Thanksgiving time, you'll have something that might be negative eight with a high of 25 in that area. What about kibble? What I want to transition a little bit into diet now. Do you, because there's this mentality out there that I've, I abide by of a dog's stomach being full before activity with his body temperature being 101 and that GI track and everything working together. Do you really want a bunch of food in that, in that, in that, that dog's digestive system on a cold day, is it the same mentality? Do you carry kibble? Do you carry protein snacks? Do you carry a biscuit from McDonald's, extra from the morning drive-through, on these cold days for the dog, or do you let do you keep him hungry throughout the hunt and then feed him right after, even on the colder days?
0: Well, Chad, you I can tell you don't know me very well because if there was a biscuit from McDonald's, it's never making it to the dog or to the blind with Pete Fisher around, okay? But um, here's the here's my theory on this: is that. Uh, I don't want to feed that dog right before it's going to be active, okay? And here's why. I don't want a bunch of food sloshing around in this dog's belly, the weight of it, and a bunch of water with it as well. Uh, dogs can get something called gastric torsion. A uh, common term for it is bloat, right? And so uh, we don't want, I personally don't want a lot of food in that dog before I'm going to work him. I don't care if it's waterfall hunting where he's got to do a bunch of retrieving or if he's in, and for sure, if he's in the upland where he's got to do a lot of running and searching for birds. and so I don't feed them. Uh, if, if it is, it's going to be hours beforehand, Chad, I don't, uh, I see this, uh, when I had my, uh, licensed shooting preserve. besides the, uh, the, the dog training, I'd see these guys come and they were going to do an hour or two pheasant hunt and they'd, uh, get, get pulled in and they'd open, uh, open up their crate and give the dog additional food. And, uh, I think, I, I think it was more to make them feel good than it was doing any benefit for the dog. And I, and here's my theory on it. If I've got a, a well-conditioned dog that's on a good food and and i fed Yukanuba for years and i went off Yukonuba for a very short short period of time and i'm back on Yukonuba and i'm a firm believer in the product fed it for 30 some years and i'll get into a discussion with some people and say well really what do you know about dogs and i said well i just know that my dogs most of my own personal dogs live to be 13 plus years old they had great lives uh they they hunted they they uh did well in competitions." And I think it's a, it's feeding a good all around food is is really important. And so what I tell people is that you're probably doing your you know you're making yourself feel good about feeding the dog before you're taking them hunting. And I think you can run the risk of bloat happening with the food in the belly and and the dog sloshing all around. And and uh, you the bloat is basically that the belly inverts. And and normally uh, it's it's. Very rare that a dog will not survive. Uh, that bloat is not fatal for a dog, and so um, uh, you, when you notice a dog that goes into shock from being uh, from gastric torsion, it, they normally don't last. You can haul them to a vet, but it's a very small percentage of dogs that survive this. So I'm always leery about feeding my dogs a, a big pile of food or any amount of food for I hunt them or have a lot of activity level, training them as well. But we're talking hunting. The same way when I get done with a hunt, I see this where guys are like, oh, gosh, I just got done upland hunting for two, three hours. The first thing I got to do is give uh, uh, give the dog a whole bunch of water and food. I don't. I let the dog uh, settle down. I let his gut settle down. And an hour or two later, then I'm going to feed the dog. And I'm going to feed a good quality food. And one of the things that I tell people about feeding a good quality food is the digestibility. The digestibility means that this food is not in the dog's stomach as long as a lot of the other foods. And the other thing is, is, is because it's a highly digestible food, I don't have to feed piles of it. You know, I see these individuals that are feeding a lesser quality food and they'll feed the dog a coffee can, you know, a big Folgers can of dog food. And um, the quality of some of these foods that are out there are such that you do got to feed them that amount uh, to get the nutritional value with a, with a product such as Yukonuba, I mean, if you saw what I feed my dogs uh, twice a day, I feed them in the morning and at evening some people say, well, gosh, Pete, you're starving him to death. Then I look at him and I say, well, you tell me if that dog uh, looks starved to you. And so mine are lean, but uh, they, this time of the year, they, they're going to look even leaner as I start pheasant hunting them. So I'm not a big proponent, Chad, to answer your question uh, of feeding a dog before you hunt him or right after you hunt him.
1: So as then you just said that you're a two time a day feeder, which some dog trainers and handlers mm-hmm. will only feed one time a day. Now, If you just said that you're a a two-time-a-day feeder, but you're hunting almost every day of the pheasant season or duck season, I'm just assuming that you did or have in your career get after him really big time. Does that turn you into a a once-a-day feeder now?
0: It it can, or a midday. Uh, But again, I've always been uh, very reluctant to feed that dog a lot of food before I'm, if it's going to be within an hour or two of me hunting him. I've never done that. I'll let him go without. And then when we're done and he's had an opportunity to rest, then I'm going to feed him. And then I might feed them again late, late evening and break that down. Uh, everything is, you know, uh, some trainers, some dog owners might do it differently. Uh, you get the guys on here from Eukanuba, uh who actually work for the company and they might say, hey, yeah, one, once a day is fine. I've, I've always been a two a day feeder, just the way I, uh, we have did it at the business and, and the way I do it to this day. But uh, it's broken down into small amounts. But when I know that dog is going to be active, I do not feed him uh, that that early, uh, you know. Uh, right before a hunt i just don't do it
1: so what is it about the dog food market I, i don't know if you feel this way but i think it's one of the biggest sectors of wool being pulled over a consumer's eye there's so many choices there's so much nice there's so many nice labels out there right there's there's so many great print ad campaigns out there are all of these foods doing what they're intended to do with a dog besides just make them not hungry anymore right like are, are we be are we having the wool pulled over our eyes in a lot of instances mr pete in the marketing for dog foods whether it's just a house pet or a hunting dog a high-powered duck dog or pheasant dog it just seems to me like there's a lot of them out there saying farm farmer's choice and this and that and you know it it just seems like a bunch of hoopla to me a lot of the times
0: yeah, I, I don't disagree with you. There's, it's very confusing nowadays. Uh, when you walk into a, uh, you know, a pet store and you start looking at the the vast majority of this uh, food that's out there is, it's really tailored to the to the pet owner, and there's just so many different varieties. And so I've been lucky that I got involved with Yukonuba early on. I was on what they called Team Yukonuba for a lot of years, um, and uh, so I got to know individuals that that uh, knew something about dog food and weren't just there to sell sell dog food. In regards to the, the, uh, the masses, uh, Chad, I, I see so many different dog foods that are out there that if you really knew just a little bit about the, the formula and the ingredients of it, most of the dog food that you find on the grocery store shelf is really not made for a working dog. Like what the type of uh, food that I need, the kind of fuel that I need to put in a dog like Trey who's, who's working and running for ribbons and, and chasing birds all fall. Um, and, and not to say that the pet owner's dog, uh, doesn't deserve a good quality food, but I'm just saying my dog, your dog has a lot greater needs because he's a performance dog. He needs much better fuel in his system than the dog that's laying around and, and, and really isn't a working dog. And, and people might think, well, gosh, well, it's kind of a snobby attitude, but it, but the bottom line is, is, most dogs that are just pets laying around in the house all day long do not have uh, the demands on them uh, physically that a working dog is going to have. And so uh, I think it's really critical that you do search out and get a, a good quality food and put it in your dog. And because I think it's going to reap the benefits um, many times over in the field. But one other thing that, you know, when you do it for a profession like I do it did for 30 years, Brad Arrington and the guys over at Mossy Pond and any other trainer. Uh, cleanup becomes a very big issue because whatever goes in has got to come out. And so these foods that are not highly digestible, uh, you just you got to feed a lot to get the desired results. And guess what, Chad? The stool volume increases, which means more work for the for the crew that does the cleanup. So I've always fed a good quality dog food. And uh, the other thing that that I used to tell my help and uh, the people that work for me at at the kennel was they'd say, why do you why do you feed you canuba? And it's, it's an expensive food. And I said to them, look, I'm providing a premium service. I'm charging a premium price. I don't want when they say to me, Pete, what dog food do you feed? I don't want to have to tell them the dog food brand that I'm feeding and then have to explain for the next 10 minutes what it is and, and, uh, and why I feed it. When I say I feed you Canuba, most people look at it and say, geez, that's a performance food. I understand it's a premium food. So that's the other thing that the other reason that I've fed that type of product over the years um, is just name brand recognition, as it's it's just good fuel for your dog.
1: And when you start looking at the amount of money it takes to just be in the duck hunting game, or even the pheasant hunting game, with with the the guns and the trucks and the ATVs, and these, there's really no excuse, right? To to if you break down the number of feeds that you're going to get out of a bag, a forty or fifty pound bag of Yukonuba. You're not. You're looking at less than a dollar a day, really. I mean, if you if you break it down on a monthly feed cycle, you might be in it, maybe a buck and a half a day, if that. And that's not that much money to to put the what's right into a dog system. Agreed.
0: I agree one hundred percent. You know that when we we start um, talking to people about having a dog trained or or purchasing a puppy, uh, I'd say to them, you know, look at all the other. expenses that you're you're going to have um in in the very near future with this dog veterinary fees dog dog food is really going to come in at a at a very 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 small portion of uh uh of your expenses of your dog the initial outlay of your dog of your puppy what's what's more important than that uh than buying a good quality puppy so everything is fairly expensive um uh and dog food is one of the things I, I don't think you go on the cheap with i'm sorry <laughs> there's a lot of things where i might scrimp um but i, I dog food is not one of them and it, it, all the reasons that i just mentioned over the last 10 minutes um performance how the dogs feel and handle how they look and then name brand uh uh recognition i think that's all all very important to me so
1: in self-admittingly 30 years plus of feeding you canuba do you do it because they pay you, Mr. Pete, to feed it? D- do they pay you to feed it? Are you a paid I, spokesperson? <laughs> and I know you're going to no. say you wish they paid you or gave you, but.
0: <laughs> you- I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. You know, I got to talk to my old buddy, Brett Vollmert over at Yukonuba. now. That, I'm glad you brought that up. I uh, know. No. no. Um, you know, when I was on Team Eukanuba, uh, we'd, we'd get uh, discounts uh, on the product. Um, but you know, these, these companies nowadays can't, can't afford to give dog food away. Uh, dog trick can't afford to give a lot of remote training callers away. Um, I, I fed it and, and because I believed in the product, uh, that's, that's the, the best thing I can tell you, but no, I've never been, I've never been paid one dime by Eukanuba. Uh, I do work for the dog truck company now, and they do pay me for, for my work. Uh, and, uh, but that wasn't early on when I was using their product. So, uh. I, I'm a pretty loyal guy. Um, you know, when the company when I'm Jukanuba sold here a number of years ago, I believe Proctor and Gamble owned them and, and they were getting it ready to sell sell it to Mars. And um they they were changing all their programs. I think they there were just a lot of things going on when a company sells uh and they and they lost a lot of a lot of their field people, a lot of their sporting dog use uh people and the, the users of the product. Uh, once Mars purchased the product, uh, uh, or the business and we're developing a product and got new people involved, um, I went back to it. Uh, I, for a very short period of time, probably two years, I didn't feed it. Otherwise my dogs have been fed, uh, you for, oh my gosh, she had, uh, 30 some years in the training business and, and now, uh, multiple years, uh, you know, since I've, I've, uh, sold the business and worked for dog trust. So, uh, I'm a firm believer in the product and, um, uh, I've, I've just had really good luck with it. That's, that's the best I can say about it.
1: Now explain that though, Mr. Pete, if you were taking a, if you had to write a synopsis of your last comment, what does that mean? What are we looking for? How can we tell kind of like if your dog has Lyme disease, you know, you can do these kind of tests on it and get this medicine, but what are we looking for when you start talking about you're getting great results out of this food?
0: Uh, great results, great stamina, uh, coats look good on them. Here's the other thing we haven't touched on is the, uh, the tartar buildup. Some of these dog foods that are out there, uh, the tartar buildup on your dog's teeth is just, just unbelievable. Uh, over the years of feeding the Yukonuba product, I see less tartar buildup. I see better looking coats. I see better condition of the dogs. I see better stamina. Uh, just, just it's the total package is what I, what I tell people. And there's a lot of other good quality dog foods out there. Don't, don't, get me wrong, but I'm only going to feed one dog food. Uh, one of the, the biggest mistakes uh, that you can make in, in, um, in feeding your dog is that switching them around to different dog foods based on uh, what you buy in the grocery store or the pet store. If you've got a working dog, pick a food, a good quality food. Uh, obviously, I, I believe in you, Canuba. Go with that and stay with it, Chad. Uh, dogs are, in my opinion, and I think a lot of the uh, dog food experts would tell you this, it's not good to be switching foods uh, feed this brand this month cause it was on sale and this one, this one, and this one, um, I've stuck with a good quality food and I stay with it, uh, all the time. I don't ever vary it. And, and that I think is really important for your dogs. Uh, your, his gut system also. And we'd see this when I had the kennel, um, we fed Yukanuba but that didn't mean everybody that brought their dogs to me for training fed Eukanuba. So what we would do is we would transition them over to Yukanuba and they, I made them bring, uh, Twenty pounds width of their own food, and we would uh, mix the formulas together—our food and theirs—and blend it. Uh, because dogs get diarrhea when you when you just do cold turkey switch to a different food, and so I don't want that mess. I, it's not good for the dog to have them have a dog there with uh, diarrhea or profuse diarrhea. So what we would do is we would blend that food, and then eventually wean them off their food during the stay there, and they would just go complete yukanuba. And then if they didn't want to go on Eukanuba when they got the dog back home, I'd send them back home with Eukanuba so they could blend back to their other dog food. So I I think consistency is really important for your dog. Along those same lines, Chad, in feeding this product for many, many years, the consistency of the product. When I open the bag of dog food, I know exactly what I'm getting. And I fed some stuff over the years that uh, was just, uh, you could, I'd open the bag and I'd look at it and it wasn't canuba And I'd say, this does not look like the last bag of dog food that I had. So I think consistency of the formula is also very important. And, and again, this is fuel uh, that we're putting in our dog. Uh, I'm, I don't want to cheap go on the cheap and put a, a you know, a, a discount food or fuel in my dog when I expect him to, to perform at a high end or a high level.
1: Have you ever encountered a dog that is hard-headed with hydration? Can a high-powered dog be hard-headed? Meaning, I've had days where you would think there's no way you're not going to run straight to the water bowl. He or she might want a few more bumpers. They might want to play a little bit more, but they're not drinking the way that i think they should be to get their hydration levels back to where they're supposed to be if there even is a level they're supposed to be at on a dog because a lot of people just put a big water bowl in the kennel and they think that their dog is drinking at will when they want to right is it something that you should control and on top of that go into wet feeding Um, i've been wet feeding a couple. i've wet fed a couple dogs meaning i put water in their dry Yukanuba food Mm -hmm. one i i want to make sure that people know it has nothing to do with their teeth or not being able to chew the hard food, and I'm trying to soften it up at all. Um, I'm just simply trying to get a little bit more hydration in there. Is that fair to do? And have you ever had to do so?
0: It, you know, I've I'm more often than not. Yet, I've run into dogs that uh, when I'm out in the field, I'm working them, or let's say we're hunting them, uh, especially in the uplands where that dog is really uh, working hard under probably warm conditions. That dog's probably going to overwater himself, and I I don't I won't let him do that either. I, I always called it letting him tank up. Uh, so the dog gets down to a, a pond or a lake or, or uh, somewhere where they've got excessive amount of water. And they just start drinking and drinking and drinking and drinking and drinking. And pretty soon, he looks like a tank. Uh, this dog has got too much water in him. And a couple things could happen. Uh, remember the, what I talked about earlier with the weight in the stomach from water and bloat, gastric torsion? The other thing is, is when they overdrink like that, Chad, and then they start working again, many times you know what happens it all comes back out. And so I've always been one to limit the amount of water that they get, because I don't want them to tank up. Over the years, um, I've really run into very few dogs that uh, would would get to a point where they didn't want to drink. Uh, I'm If I was gonna, if, if and when I did see that, Chad, it would happen at the end of a hunt, mostly a, 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 an upland hunt, where you have just worked that dog all day long, and he's just gassed. He's, he doesn't want to eat. He doesn't want to drink. That might be more, uh, more common in that situation. And then we want to try and get this dog to, to eat and drink because uh, now it's the downtime. We might be hunting him the next day. Uh, and that happened a lot when I had the shooting preserve. We'd have uh, hunts there uh, day after day after day. So th- that's the situation where those dogs are expending a lot of energy each and every day. And I want to make sure that they're getting enough food in them and enough water. But when I would see these dogs that wouldn't drink, it was normally because they were just so gassed at the end of the day and they didn't care about eating or drinking. All they really wanted to do was sleep. In those situations, we do want to try and get water and food in them somehow.
1: So where does that leave us on the exercise part of a dog, Mr. Pete, when it's duck season? Let's say you're hunting three days a week. That dogs might not be as active on the other four days of the week. What is the mindset that you have, Mr. Pete, on those off days during duck season when you know you're going to be – it's not going to be a regular training day. You're going to have the elements. You're going to have the cold. You're going to have the icy water. You're going to have cold water temps. You're going to have all yep. of this going on. Plus, you know, a, a, a duck hunt, just like a human, is. it's different being on a duck hunt than it is at the sporting clays range. It's different for a dog to be on a duck hunt than it is for him to be out in the training arena. Um, is, that, is that something that you take into consideration of – of maybe some shorter workouts, maybe like looking at it like an athlete, even on my off days, I'm going to go get a bullpen in if I'm a baseball player, stuff like that.
0: Yep. Yep. Exactly. I'm going to give them some exercise, but uh, again, I would, I would tell the story about when I had the shooting preserve and these dogs were working for a couple hours in the morning, couple hours in the afternoon. And, and I'm talking searching for birds in front of the gun, Uh, upland hunting, pheasant hunting is primarily what they were doing and they're putting out a lot of energy. And so, the days that I that I didn't uh, have them working, that was kind of an off day where they they were out and they got exercise, uh, but I wasn't working with them at all because uh, I needed them the very next day to work again. And so those dogs that those dogs are, are become very much like athletes. If you look at something similar to that, Chad, is look at the dogs that at the guys and we'll use our, our friends over at Mossy Pot again. Uh, um, those dogs are being trained every day. They're running, they're training hard every day. Yeah. There's some days that roll around where they've got off days, but those dogs uh, are in training or running events damn near almost every day. And so those dogs, you got to get some downtime for them also. And those dogs also, you got it. This is why it's so critical to get a good fuel in the dog because they're just they're It's, it's almost a day to day, to day, to day, to day. They're like a high powered athlete. And so, when they do get an opportunity for a day off, a day of rest, uh, those were the days that i just leave them say, hey, no no work at all.
1: None, huh? Just none.
0: No, just exercise, you know, but no, I wouldn't work them at all because I knew I needed them the very next day.
1: Is a dog's hunt IQ and training IQ, Mr. Pete, meaning, let's say, let's just take Trey, master hunter. Axel that's sitting by me right now is a master hunter and a hunter-retriever champion, all of this. Is it like riding a bike? What is the upkeep take? Are we taking a chance of that dog forgetting what he or she is supposed to be legitimately the best at once they become a master hunter or able to go out and do all of these drills? There's a lot of drills, a lot of memorization, a lot of stuff that just blows your mind that we could have a dog trainer like yourself or Brad or Lee teach these animals to do this stuff. Is it like riding a bike for these dogs or is constant upkeep a necessity when it comes to the high-powered duck dog or pheasant dog?
0: Well, again, de- depends on the dogs, what I always call the trainability level. But uh, what I found over the years is that these dogs that perform at this level, such as Trey or your dog or my previous master hunter, Rex, is I could give them some time off. And uh, and quite honestly, uh, they hardly missed a beat. Now, if I gave them a month or two off and didn't do anything with them, I wouldn't expect the dog to be sharp, so to speak. But I had I had times where I was uh, running the, some hunt tests, and and I'm sure Brad could tell you stories just like this. Um, you know, you'd come in and getting ready to uh, go to a hunt test or a, or a competition on a Thursday, and uh, and the dog just didn't perform very well. And and you know, and you always kept thinking, gotta want that dog at the top of his game right before I run him that weekend, right? And of all things, Chad, I would see dogs that didn't have very good days on Thursday, and guess what? They came back on Saturday and Sunday and just were all stars. So, you know, it's the old, every dog has his day. Uh, I think these dogs that have high trainability levels uh, have a tendency to retain their trainability very well. And so giving a dog a a day off or a few days off, um, I I don't think that makes a a huge difference. And if anything, uh, you know, it's just, it gives them a little time to regenerate and and get them back in, in good physical condition. And we're back into it, whether we be hunting or training Or running competitions again so i've never been afraid to give my dogs a little bit of time off
1: do you feel that a high-powered duck dog after he develops he or she develops their social skills can just treating that dog as a normal pet now Kids, grandkids in the house, on the bed, on the pillow, up on the couch. Is, is there a mindset that you have of, wait a minute, we can't treat this like just a normal house dog, even though, you know, he, he might not re- forget everything he or she knows. But do we just go back into that mindset of, hey, he or she's part of the family, Mr. Pete, and put him up on the bed, put him up on the couch. As long as they're well-mannered and their disposition and their, men, their manners are there, is it okay to have them in the house and be part of the family when they are this high-powered athlete?
0: Um, uh, I love that question. And, and here's what I would say to that. You know, I, I, I go back many years, uh, in training dogs where m- many of these dogs, unfortunately were just a tool to retrieve birds, chase birds up for the people. And they lived in a, uh, four by eight kennel on a, on a concrete slab in the back corner of the, uh, of the property. And, uh, they got let out food and water, cleaned the kennel, put them back in and, And uh, they were just more of a tool than they were part of the family. That isn't the case anymore with many of these dogs, Chad. Many of these dogs are dogs that are in the house, in the kennel combination, have house rights. I think the bonding process is much greater than the dog becomes part of the family. I think that's really important. Um, To your point about bringing the dog in the house, my dogs come in the house on a regular basis, especially in the wintertime. Uh, there's just so few things we can do up here in Minnesota um, and it gets dark so fast so my dogs come in I've got dog beds uh, risers that they go on in my entertainment room and I'm having a cold beverage at night and watching the news or something and the dogs are there by the fireplace Uh, I've never been one to let them sleep on the bed that's just me I think a bed is for a human being and uh, our dogs are not furniture layers Uh, they but they have their spots they've got Mats or dog beds in the house. I think it's just a great way to to uh, help with the bonding and make that dog more of a part of your family. It's just too easy, Chad, to leave Mountain out in the kennel in the backyard and forget about him. And so, uh, I I think that that goes a long ways in in our control process and uh, and uh, keeping a dog uh, bonded to you. And so he's a team player. And so I would run into this uh, question many times. Uh, the pr- people would say, well, you know, I get home from work and I turn him out and then he runs away. Um, and I said, where are you? Oh, I went in to change clothes and watch TV or whatever. And I said, well, you know, what's wrong with you being outside? What's wrong with you bringing the dog in the house and, and making him part of the family? Uh, my dogs, I'd like to think are pretty well-trained, but guess what, Chad? If I went and turned my dogs outside and I live on 100, 120 acres, uh, if I didn't supervise them, eventually they would probably start roaming and, and go over to the neighbors also, but I don't let them do that. Uh, my dogs are out they're either with me under my supervision they're in the house with me or they're being trained or hunted they're, I just never have been one to turn my dogs loose and just let them run free and so uh, I think by incorporating that that dogs um, you know into the household just makes for a better mannered uh, dog I think it just makes them be part of the family so I, I really I like that and I think it's really important.
1: I think it's important to keep in mind too that like when you look at celebrities on TMZ, right? Yeah, uh, oh really? They they wear sweatpants? They go to get milk at the mini mart, right? Like yeah. you just you just have we as humans, we get these thoughts that like that they're not human, right? We always with with the celebrity outlook in our society, especially with social media now, Mr. Pete, we're just like, there's no way that they can be human. They're all just like us with a different skill set. These dogs, yeah. these dogs, I've caught myself, Pete, looking at them like did you really just take a leak right there? You're not a normal dog. <laughs> like, did you really just, it's hard to keep in mind that these are yeah. still dogs, right? They're, yeah. they're still going to have puppies. They're still going to act like puppies once in a while. They're still going to act like dogs. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? You almost have that mindset. Like there's no way that you just did that with all of the training you have. <laughs> they're just, they're still yeah. just dogs,
0: right? Well, and, and again, some of the things we forget about Chad is when, when a dog, takes a leak on, on, on the, uh, on the furniture, you know, if he raises his leg, you know, there's, we've domesticated these dogs uh, to perform uh, a, a, a skill for us and become our companion. And we sometimes forget about, you know, what these dogs were like, what, you know, there's a certain amount of their instincts that we can't take out of them, you know, and that dog, that male that lifts his leg, he's not doing to upset Chad. He's marking his spot. That's what he's doing. And even though you're saying, geez, he's been trained a lot and uh, he's a master hunter and he's my friend and my buddy and my hunting partner. But he just lifted his leg on my favorite chair. He's doing that to mark his spot. We can't take all of this out of out of the dog. You know, when I see I just saw this uh, recently, uh, uh, there was we've got a lake place and one of my dogs found a dead fish and he was rolling on it And, and a dead fish stinks. And I wouldn't go down there and roll on it, but I'm not a dog and i said this to the people that uh, were standing there i said well you know there's a reason that he 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 did that and they said well, why cuz cuz he just wanted to do it and i said no instinctively there's something called predator and prey and that dog is rolling on that fish because he's attempting to mask his smell from whatever would hunt him down and kill him that's his you know what before we we took these dogs and domesticated them there's a certain amount of things that they they that we can't ever breed out of them, and one of them is he. he his instincts are other things can could kill him, and he didn't do it. He didn't roll in his dead fish. Trey didn't roll in the dead fish to upset Pete Fisher. <laughs> he did it to try and mask his scent. And and but you say, well, geez, there's nothing out there that's going to kill Trey. Well, Trey's instincts don't know that. Uh, Trey digs. Yeah, uh, your dog when he relieves himself probably scratches his scratches the dirt like mad, doesn't he? Oh yeah, on a regular basis. Yeah, every time. And so he's trying to. He's trying to cover his scent. He's covering up his scent. So whatever whatever predator killed him when before we domesticated him, what hunted him and ate him, he's trying to cover that scent so his his feces and his urine so that something else can't find him and track him down. So those are the things that people have a tendency to forget about. Um, is that, you know, he didn't lift his leg on the on the uh, furniture to upset you. He didn't do that. He didn't roll in Trey didn't roll in the dead fish to upset Pete. It was just some of his, his uh, natural instincts that we've never bred out of them. And guess what, Chad? We're never going to breed that out of them. They're dogs.
1: I've never heard that about the predator part. And I've, I've often wondered, like, that's the way that I could tell my dog is done relieving him or herself is with that, you know, <laughs> kicking up the back legs and cut, throwing yeah. dirt on it. That's, yeah. that's freaking yeah. awesome. That's very interesting that before they were domesticated, they're covering their scent so nothing could hunt them down
0: trying to cover his feces so another animal that was bigger stronger faster and then couldn't find him and kill him and uh, and again but people people say to me well really uh, it would go back that far well think about this you know we took we took dogs that showed signs of pointing birds let's say a German shorthair pointer and those dogs pointed birds and we took that and refined it and you can take these dogs uh, like a German shorthair that is just out of backyard breeding that nobody's ever really bred to run in a field trial or hunt test. And they still point birds. And and we have that. That's in his blood, so to speak, that, uh, that that's that been refined, but also in the, in some strains, but we never refined it at all. It's just there yet. Those dogs point birds. Our retrievers love to go and chase things, OK? They're retrievers. Guess what? The training comes in and getting them to bring it back to us. You know, if you left the, uh, the, the Labrador retriever going, you never trained him. I always tell people he's going to do one of two things when you shoot a bird for him. One of two things. He's going to go over and eat it or he's going to go take it and bury it and, and, and so he can eat it later. Where does the training come in? The training comes in getting him to pick it up and bring it back to Pete Fisher, who just shot it for him. So, but we've got that, we've got that natu- natural instinct for him to chase out and want to pick that up. The natural instinct is not for him to bring that back again. The natural instinct is to go bury it and eat it later or eat it right on the spot. So uh, those are some things that, you know, as you start, um, thinking about some of the things that your dog does or doesn't do, that's kind of important to, to, to remember that, that these are just natural instincts that, uh, you know, back when they were in their dingo stage, so to speak, you know, before we domesticate them, that's, that's why they do some of these things.
1: So patience is key in being a a quality dog owner and handler. Um, Patience is key. But I've also heard that guys like you, or somebody that gets to your stature in the dog world, can disqualify a dog and say he doesn't have what it takes to go to the next level of the dog world meaning he might not be uh, qualified for master hunter he might not qualify to be mike lardy's next gem in the field trial circuit he might not ever turn out to be a great duck dog but he's going to be a good companion he's going to whine a little bit in the duck blind he might go out and chase butterflies but he'll get your duck if you throw some rocks over in the general area that that ducks in why do you disqualify a dog and say hey put him to pasture if he's not going to go to that next level or are you more of a patient type mr pete that's like hey Let's see if we can turn this thing around.
0: You know, it, it, again, a lot of it depends on the dog, but back when I had my facility in my, my business where we were training dogs and people brought them to us and, and left them with us, uh, we went through weeks of evaluation. And, uh, if I saw a dog for various reasons that I saw that just did not have it, you know, what I thought had the drive, the desire, or had some behavior issues, um, uh, not, uh, severely gun-shy might be another one that I just, that was pretty good at breaking dogs that were gun-shy, but just some of them, you just couldn't. I always had the owner come out and I sat down with them. I showed him what I was seeing, described what I was seeing. And I'd say, ultimately it's your money. You're spending the money on having this dog trained over at Pete Fisher's. I want, I'm going to tell you what I'd probably do, but at the end of the day, you're writing the check. And, and you do wash some of them out. It's just the nature of the beast. Um, but I, I was, I was one of those that probably erred more on the side of keeping them l- a little bit longer to give them a fair shake rather than just keeping them for a couple of weeks and say, ah, oh, heck, there's nothing I can do with this dog. Uh, you know, uh, send them on and, and tell the guy to go get a, a, another one or a gal get another one. So, uh, there are times when, uh, especially when you're, when you're taking money for a service and, and they bring you an animal that just doesn't have it and you feel like they're going to end up spending a lot of money. And at the end of the day, Chad, they're still not going to have really what, what you and I would expect is the minimum out of that dog. Then we get to a point where we say, you know what, you're, you're kind of wasting your money on this dog and uh, see if you can find him another home or just accept the fact that he's going to be a nice pet and is not going to be a, a usable hunting dog. But when you start running for ribbons, that's a whole, whole nother game as you're well aware of, you know, we can get dogs that are usable, suitable gun dogs, but Boy, the to have dogs that run in the field trial world and the hunt test world, uh, that's not made for all of them by any stretch of the imagination. So uh, those dogs, you probably see a higher rate of dogs that don't make the cut, but that's not said they couldn't make good, good hunting dogs and pets yet.
1: Mr. Pete, thank you for your time. One last question off the top of your head. You don't get a lot of time to think about like a Budweiser hot seat, quick seat, quick flash question. If a dog eats you but can he or she become smarter and get a better hunt IQ. Will the food make a dog smarter?
0: I, I do, yeah, and I'll tell you why. because if I've got a dog that's operating physically at its peak performance, that means I can put more time and effort in that dog. It really does. And so if I've got a dog that's not got good fuel in him and is not conditioned well, that's a dog that can't take the the amount of of uh, rigorous training that's required nowadays. To have a good duck dog pheasant dog or for sure a competition so fuel is pretty damn important my friend
1: that's pete fisher from the doctor company talking today on eukanuba's duck dogs podcast series we're so thankful and humbled to have mr pete here any closing words my man
0: oh well we're into the fall and uh now we should be getting out and uh and, and getting that dog uh, in the field. This is when this is when it all starts to come together. It's actually been pretty warm up here in Minnesota up until the last week or so, but we're in a cool stretch now. So you're going to find me out chasing some pheasants, and if we ever get some ducks around, you're going to see me sitting in the slough too. So, uh, but this is the time just to get out and, and enjoy the outdoors with the, with, uh, with the dogs that we've brought along and trained all summer long. Now's the time to get them out.
1: Thank you all for subscribing to the Fowl Life Podcast. This has been another edition of Eukanuba's Duck Dog Series, brought to you by our friends at Eukanuba. Check them out. They are literally kicking butt when it comes to scientific research and the diets that our sporting dogs, high caliber dogs, need to keep performing for us on a daily basis. But don't let that take the attention away from the just general pets out there. Eukanuba makes a dog food for everybody. We're proud and humbled to be teamed up with them just like we are with the Doctor Company. Mr. Pete, thank you very much for being here. Thank you guys for all the ratings and reviews. Please tell a family member or a friend to subscribe to the podcast. Download them. We truly appreciate it. We'll keep bringing a diversity in guests and topics. Hopefully, I'll appreciate that. If you have any inquiry reason you want to contact us info at the foul tell us who you want next on the podcast or what topics you want touched on we have a lot of great episodes coming up tom hit that button this is 2 a.m logic the song is called my foul life